dismissed for their scripture time, if you would like. And for all of us in here, please turn to Matthew 10. I hope you have your Bibles with you. And uh, if you don't have one with you already, there are some in the backs of the chairs in front of you that I'd love for you to use if that would benefit you. And you'll find our text on page 814, 814 in the Bibles in the backs of the chairs. And if one of those Bibles would serve you or you know someone who it would serve, please take it and take it home for yourself or, or give it away. When I was in college, one of the most, often I should say, the most basic class titles included the number 101. So, some, you know, History 101, or I never took any, uh, like, biology, but I suppose Biology 101 would be one of them. My college's most basic English class, though, was actually titled EN100. And the less, t- the less basic English class was EN 101. And that's actually what came to my mind when studying this passage and thinking about what Jesus is teaching here about discipleship. Because these 15 verses, to me, are simultaneously very basic in some ways and also very challenging. And whereas in EN 100, the most basic principles of English were taught and tested, in EN 101, things got a little bit tougher. Though technically it was still a basics class. You could actually test out of EN 100, as I recall anyway. And then eventually EN 102 came around and things were even more tough. And believe it or not, my working title for next week's sermon is Discipleship 102. We'll see if that winds up being the case. But for now, let's just think of this passage as Discipleship 101. Because in it, there is some basic stuff, but there's also some really challenging stuff too. The text is set in the beginning of the second discourse of Jesus in Matthew, the first of which, of course, being his great Sermon on the Mount. And I view chapter 10, verse 5, through chapter 11, verse 1, as a five-part discourse. The first few verses of chapter 10 are this list of the names of Jesus' disciples that he sent out as apostles, but then the rest of chapter 10, and then right at the very beginning of chapter 11, are these words that give instruction to those disciples listed for us in verses 1 through 5 about the mission that he was calling them to. And so the next five sermons are going to be parts 1 through 5 of this discourse, and today, part 1, Discipleship 101. In the passage that Rob just read for us, I see three basic elements of both what it means to live as a disciple and what it takes to make disciples. And both of those things are right at the very heart of the Christian life. And that's right at the very center of our church's mission. In our mission statement, you will see that we are moving together towards being and making disciples together. So in a sense, Discipleship 101. And these three elements of this course, if you will, from Jesus are, first of all, a diverse list of apostles, then a set of specific instructions from Jesus, and then third, the assurance that he gives to those that he is sending. The first is what will have to be a somewhat quick but still an important look at the people that Jesus sends. And so the first element of Discipleship 101 is diversity. Jesus sends his ambassadors. You see that in these first several verses of 
chapter 10. He calls these 12 disciples. He gives them authority to clean, to uh, heal every disease, and to uh, cast out unclean spirits. And then there's these names of these men. And then at the very beginning of verse 5, it says that he sends them out. I actually thought about doing this passage, uh, verses 1 through 4 at least, maybe the beginning of verse 5 too, as its own sermon in order to look even more closely at each of these men. Decided against that, obviously, but let's take a few minutes to examine who these men were. I have five observations about these guys from these verses. They won't be up on the screen, but you can hear them, I hope, pretty, uh, pretty clearly. They're, first of all, men who are given authority from Jesus. It says it right there in the text. He gave, in verse 1, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and so on and so forth. Now, once again, I know this is all the way back in the year 2022, long ago, but you may remember that Matthew has already made a very big deal about authority in his gospel, Jesus' authority. And what is it then that Jesus gives to these men? He gives them authority, and it's just like the same kind of authority that Jesus exercised in his ministry previous. Authority over unclean spirits, casting them out, healing diseases and afflictions. And that's just incredibly remarkable to me, that this supernatural, divine authority that Jesus has is dispensed, if you will, to these servants of his. So number one, they're given authority from Jesus. Number two, this is a diverse bunch of guys. And, And I mean that in terms of background and what we know about their personalities and their tendencies and giftedness. We certainly don't know everything about them. But what we do know, for example, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they're all fishermen. But Matthew is a tax collector. And while they would have had some things in common about people not viewing them very positively, on the other hand, they were very different kinds of people. For example, the fishermen would have been viewed by perhaps many others in their society as kind of lower class, yucky hicks or something. Whereas the tax collectors were viewed as traitors, were viewed as these vile, evil men. And so you've got fishermen, you've got a tax collector, you've also got, you might have a translation that says Simon the Canaanian, but others say Simon the Zealot, and that's basically what Canaanian can be translated here. In other words, Simon here, this Simon, not the same as Simon Peter, Simon is a political extremist of a sort. He's a zealot, which had to do with his political views. So without going into every detail about all of these guys that we could possibly find out or know, I think you already see what I mean. These are a diverse group of men. Third, these men are, and this is very important, these men are unique. And I don't just mean in terms of them, what I just said in terms of diversity. What I mean is these men are called to be apostles. Now they're disciples too, which is just like every one of us. But not every one of us is called to be an apostle. And so these men are unique. They are, in other words, different from us in that very special way. And so what I'm saying here is that we shouldn't read this passage and conclude that all the things that these men are called to go and do are all the same things that we are then called to go and do. And if you've been here for any amount of time, you know that we believe and teach that God certainly can use and does sometimes use supernatural acts by his power to accomplish his will today, just like he did through these men here. 
But what we have going on here is men called to serve in a special phase, if you will, of God's redemptive plan, where things were changing. In our phase, if you want to use that word, of the plan of redemption, we have something that these men didn't, and that is the word of God in its full form in our hands, and for many of us in supercomputers in our pockets. And so the word is sufficient on its own to reveal God, to bring conviction to sinners' hearts, and to grow believers into grace. And so where the word now is readily accessed, these kinds of miraculous and supernatural occurrences aren't as regularly needed. And again, certainly God can do whatever he wants and sometimes does still work in supernatural ways to draw attention to his son and his saving work. Some of you perhaps know of people or have seen things like this happen yourself. But the point that I'm trying to make here is that when Jesus sends out these men to cast out demons and heal sicknesses, that's unique. That's not what Christians today are called to do in that same way. And you need to know that there are teachers and preachers and authors today who say that unless healing is going on, you don't have real Christianity. And that's wrong. The apostles were and are unique. Number four, so first, they're given authority from Jesus. Second, they're diverse. Third, they're unique. Fourth, they're men with major flaws. We're not given a direct window into the hearts of all of these guys, but we do know, once again, that Matthew was a tax collector. They were known for dishonesty. They were known for treachery and unkindness and greed. We know Peter, if you read the Gospels, could get pretty volatile. We know John and James at one point wrongly wanted Jesus to rain hellfire down on some people. Most notably, at the end of the list, who do you see? Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. We know what he eventually did, betraying our Lord to the authorities who eventually crucified him. So these are men also with major flaws. And then fifth and finally, these are men who are sent by Jesus. And I think that's the whole point, really, that we should take from this list of men. We can look at some of these guys, certainly not all of them, and not all of them even in the same way, but we can look at these guys and sort of make them out to be heroes. But just like everything in life, it's actually all about Jesus. We can certainly admire certain things about these servants of the Lord, and we should, and there are things we can learn from their lives. But the, the whole point of, of them being called as apostles is that the word apostle in Greek means one who is sent out. And so these are men who are sent out by Jesus to serve in his kingdom-proclaiming, gospel-sharing, creation-restoring ministry. And so these are men who are a diverse group of sent ambassadors. And, and I don't, when I said diversity, I'm not talking about the same kind of diversity that our culture is, is often obsessed with. I'm just making the point that this was not a monolithic group of cookie-cutter people who were all the same and fit the mold perfectly of what we might think a servant of Jesus should look like. No, Jesus called a varied and unique group of men to serve as his apostles. And as apostles, they were sent ones. And as sent ones, they were ambassadors of this king. And what they were doing was ultimately all about the one who sent them. And that's where even though these men 
are quite different from us. We need to remember that whole apostolic thing. They're apostles. We're not. But we do have this in common with them. We do have in common with them that we all here today who are followers of Jesus are a a diverse group of ambassadors. Not apostles, strictly speaking, although you could certainly understand where perhaps you could say we have an apostolic calling in terms of being sent, certainly. When you read this list, at a bare minimum, we should be thinking something along the lines of this. You know, this reminds me that just as Jesus called this group of men who had unique gifts and unique backgrounds and unique flaws, but that he called to spread his kingdom news, so he has called me. And so on the one hand, <laughs> we can't relate at all to these guys when it comes to being apostles. And on, a, on another hand, you could also say we can't relate to these guys in the sense that we, don't, we shouldn't read the Bible and make it all about us. And so we don't want to read this and just make it all about us. Oh, yeah, that's me. The Bible's all about Jesus. And this is about Jesus sending 12 specially appointed men to serve as apostles. But on the other hand, there are clear applications for us who read this text in our phase of redemptive history after the resurrection after the ascension after the great commission after the arrival of the holy spirit at pentecost and now here in our church age because even though we're not apostles in the same sense we are sent ones and so that's element number one of discipleship 101 jesus sends his ambassadors Element number two is instruction, where we see Jesus setting the agenda. And this is really the heart of this passage, the second part of verse 5 all the way to verse 13. Jesus is sending these ambassadors, verse 5, he sends them out and then he instructs them with this list of instructions that Rob read for us just a few minutes ago. And so he sends these ambassadors, but he doesn't send them without any guidance. He doesn't send them without any clear direction. He sends them with specific instructions, guidelines on how to do what he's calling them to do. And the first instruction or the first characteristic of these instructions is that he has an agenda characterized by strategic intention. You see that in verses five and six. He gives them specific, a specific strategy for that particular moment. Go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so that strategy at that moment was to focus on the Jews. And we must not read this and conclude that Jesus didn't care about the Gentiles. It's evident in the rest of the New Testament that that's not the case. In fact, it's been evident already before in Matthew that Jesus cares about the Gentiles. But at this moment, their strategy right then was to focus on the Jews. And I think there's something for us to learn there. Our efforts at discipleship should be strategic and intentional, like Jesus. Jesus's strategy looks different at different times and at different places, and it's targeted at different people and even through different people, but it is deliberate, it is intentional, and it is strategic. In other words, it didn't just happen willy-nilly, and it didn't even always happen organically. You know, some things, sometimes things happen organically, and that can be a good thing. God often does that, and sometimes 
people who really like to be in control and plan things down to the very I's dotted and T's crossed need to be more willing to let things happen organically rather than try to force everything. But clearly, one of the characteristics of Jesus' mission here was to be strategic and intentional. And I think we also, we too, like Jesus, need to put effort, some thought, some time into thinking through intentional and deliberate strategies for our own discipleship efforts rather than just assuming everything is going to magically happen as long as we sit back and trust God. Friends, we must trust God, but we must make strategic, intentional efforts. Can you imagine how much more we would reach our city and how much growth would take place in this body if we took some time, perhaps in our fellowship groups or in a conversation with someone that we have in the body over for dinner to say, what are some ways that we can be more strategic in our pursuit of being and making disciples together? So first, his agenda is characterized by strategic intention. Number two, his agenda is characterized by a spiritual message. In verse 7, he tells them to go to the house of Israel in verse 6. And in verse 7, he tells them to proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that is the heart of the message of gospel ministry and of disciple making. Jesus sent his apostles with this same message that Jesus himself spread and that even John the Baptist before him had spread to repent for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. It's the message that the king and his kingdom were here and that it was time to get on board with the reign of the king and to submit to his will, to repent and to receive his forgiveness by faith and be gloriously restored to him by his grace. And that is the same message that we are called to spread to. That Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. That he has come to bear our sins and our sorrows and to make the way for us to be restored in a relationship to our creator and enjoy him forever. Now, as these men spread this message, they also were called to perform miracles to sort of validate, you might say, their message and demonstrate that the kingdom of God was breaking through and was inaugurating and was on the move. But today, friends, you and I, I've already said it, we have God's word. And the apostles didn't carry Bibles around in their pockets. All of Genesis through Revelation, right here for those of us who are Christians. But we do have that. And so when we go with the message, Good news! The king has come! We don't say, let me show you by healing your sickness. But we do say, let me show you in this passage of the ancient holy scriptures what God has revealed about himself. What we really need to understand here is that at the heart of our message is news that is centrally spiritual. And clearly, the physical matters too, which is evident by the verses that come next. But we have to remember, friends, that at the heart of our message is a message about sins being forgiven, about souls being saved, about hearts being supernaturally transformed from the inside out. 
and about a, a supernaturally powerful, eternal, spiritual person pursuing a relationship with his creatures. And so, friends, even though we're just about to get look at verses 8 through 10, and they're a little bit longer than just verse 7, don't miss the beautiful simplicity and massive importance of that message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand is news that primarily and centrally pertains to spiritual restoration to God. But, number three, his agenda is also characterized by sacrificial service to the needy. In verses 8 through 10, he does call them to care about physical needs. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, for example. Clearly, felt needs are important here. The sick, the demon-possessed, and the demon-oppressed, and even the dead are in view here. People, in other words, whose lives have been profoundly affected by the brokenness that sin has brought into the world. And what Jesus wants his servants to do, what he wants for these people affected by the brokenness of the world, is for his servants to minister to them in such a way that his kingdom rule and reign would break into their lives and demonstrate the promised Messiah's power in their lives and to prove that the promised Messiah had come to deal with the brokenness that sin brought. But remember... You can have a formerly demon-possessed person who never trusts in Jesus for the salvation of their soul and still wind up in hell. There could be a sick person who is healed who never then trusts in Christ. The physical needs being met are not the ultimate end. And so I think it's a mistake to equate physical restoration with spiritual restoration in exactly the same ways, even though they certainly do go hand in hand here. Because just because you build an orphanage or a crisis pregnancy center doesn't mean that everyone who's in it is going to automatically be a child of God, apart from their own exercising faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. But friends, listen, at the same time, we must not lose sight of the importance of physical service to the needy. It's often a huge part of God's plan to bring the spiritual message of the good news of the gospel to those needy people. So friends, I believe that even in our own context, it is a good thing for our church to be involved in physically caring for people. That's why our brother Lauren has had a burden for years to engage in the help for homes ministry in our community. And of course, COVID made things difficult. I don't even know how it's going to look this year, but that's just one example of an area where we can serve in our community, caring for people who have physical needs with the hope that then we'll have a door opened to share the good news of their spiritual needs being met in Christ alone. But that's actually not all that there is here, is it? This call to heal and raise the dead and cast out demons. What else does he say about their service? It's that it's to be sacrificial. You see what he says in verses, uh, the end of verse 8 and, and following? You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Very interesting. 
He's essentially saying, don't worry about compensation, just worry about the people you're serving. Don't worry about planning for your own comforts. Don't worry about covering every contingency and planning every possible outcome. Just go and serve. Not worrying about yourself, but sacrificially looking to the needs of others and trusting that God will provide for your needs. I think that's essentially what verse 10 is getting at. Don't worry. You will be well cared for as you do what you're called to do. That ought to remind you of what Jesus already said in Matthew in his great sermon when he said not to worry about what you wear, what you eat, what you drink. Just seek God's kingdom first and everything else will be taken care of. And we know he's not saying be foolish. We know he's not saying don't have a job and don't seek to provide for your needs. We've talked about all that already. But essentially, the point here is he's telling his disciples, you do what I've called you to do. Do it sacrificially, serving others, and I will care for you. And boy, does obeying like that require faith or what? It's faith (laughs) that causes someone to look at the circumstances around them or to look at their bank account or to look at their current life situation and say, despite what my eyes are telling me about how I should be freaking out right now or about what I should be worried about, I'm going to trust that God is in control and he will care for me as I am faithful to him. Particularly in the context of ministry, in the context of being and making disciples together, which every one of us here is called to do. And so, selfless, sacrificial service to the needy is the third characteristic of Jesus' agenda. Sacrificial, not self-preserving. Needy, others needy-minded, more than thinking of one's own needs. And others-centered, not self-focused. The fourth characteristic is that his agenda is characterized by seeking persons of peace. Verses 11 through 13. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. This is a really interesting one too. Perhaps you've heard the phrase persons of peace used before. It's kind of a Christianese sort of phrase that's not exactly found in the Bible, but it's based on a passage like this, where basically Jesus is saying that what his, as his apostles were doing, what they were called to do, they needed to be on the lookout for people who were receptive to the gospel message. And of course, this is similar to the point we looked at earlier about strategic intentionality. Verse 11 says, find out who is worthy. Now, that might trip you up a little bit. And so I just want to say unequivocally that this certainly does not mean that there are some people who are more worthy of forgiveness and salvation than others. That is not at all what Jesus means here. Everyone is totally unworthy of salvation and forgiveness, right? Everyone has sinned, sinned. Everyone has committed treason against the king and deserves judgment. But what Jesus is saying here is essentially this. If person A that you're talking to seems receptive to the message of the gospel and person B is really hostile and rejecting it, spend your time on person A. 
And so that's typically what people mean when they say looking for persons of peace, looking for people that you can talk to who are interested perhaps in reading the Bible with you or talking about spiritual things or whatever else it might be. Jesus is not, he is not promoting a snooty, elitist, ivory tower, judgmental evaluation of everyone we meet as to whether or not they're worthy of our time. But he is saying that there are going to be some who receive the message and who are therefore worthy of the time spent even more so than for those for whom it would just be, as Jesus also said in his great sermon, casting pearls before swine. Now, when you look at verse 12, this whole business of, of greeting the house might seem kind of strange to you. That's not something I have done any time recently. The last house I went into was my parents, and I did not say, hello, house. How's it going? And I suppose you haven't either. Rather, what Jesus is talking about here is a, a more cultural thing for them, a quite formal proclamation of peace on behalf of the king and his kingdom. That's what verse 13 then goes on to explain, talking about letting your peace come upon the house that is worthy, and if it's not, let your peace return to you. He's talking about this, once again, this pursuing persons of peace, people, even whole homes that are receptive to the message of his kingdom gospel, and being on the lookout for people who are receptive, and proclaiming the peace, if you will, of the kingdom by investing in them the message of the good news. And so what this means for us, I think, in our own context, is that if you're in a conversation with a coworker, or you're chatting on the sidelines with one of your kids' teammates' parents in some sporting event at a soccer game or whatever, or you're talking with a neighbor or whatever, and eventually, because you're a Christian, and naturally, the Lord and the Bible and the church is going to come up, and that's what your whole life is about. And then they seem kind of interested and aren't running away from you because they think you're a crazy, weird Christian. Then keep pressing in a little further. See what God's going to do. It may be that they are a so-called person of peace and that God is calling you to bless them with the message of the gospel. And so element number two of Discipleship 101 is that Jesus sets the agenda. You don't. I don't. Jesus does. And while the precise specifics of our calling does look different in some very important ways, different than some of the specifics of the calling of the 12 apostles, the same truth remains that when it comes to our calling to be busy at the mission of being and making disciples together, it's Jesus who sets the agenda. You know what that means? It means we do not get to make excuses for why we're not doing what he's called us to do. We get to get with the program, his program, and sync up, if you will, with his agenda, no matter what it takes, including selfish, selfless, sacrificial service. Any of these excuses sound familiar? I'll get more active in missional living once my kids are out of sports. What if instead we were more strategically intentional about talking to the kids' coaches or the parents of your kids' 
teammates and pursuing spiritual conversations in that context? Or what about, I'll disciple someone when my life gets less crazy. I've got some really bad news for you. You ready? Things will never get less crazy. Ever. I'm dead serious. You know, maybe the holidays are over, and certainly there are some seasons of life that are a little little bit unique. But friends, this is the life we're in. And it's never coming back, never going back to the old days when we didn't have buzzes in our pockets all day long and our calendars super full. It's never going back. There's just going to be something else that pops up as a potential excuse for not doing what God is calling you to do. And so the question isn't, when is my life going to get less crazy or busy, but rather, what areas of the crazy do I need to be submitting to the Lord and his calling on my life? Redeeming the crazy, you might say, for his purposes. Here's one, my last one. I'll obey Jesus once I've cleaned up in certain areas, make myself a better tool in his hands. Friends, look at the scriptures. Look at the many, many servants of God in the Bible, and then just try to say that again. These were not cleaned up, all put together people. These were messed up people, and God called them. And I'm not just talking about the 12 disciples, by the way. I'm talking about many others. He called them, and he's calling you too. Well, the third element of this first part, I couldn't just, I just couldn't resist the temptation to alliterate the point. So I have another A word that we don't use very often. I'm sorry. Number three, assurance, Jesus stands as arbiter. Okay, so three A's, at least makes me feel better. Perhaps it'll help you remember it a little bit more clearly. He sends his ambassadors, he sets the agenda, and he stands as the arbiter. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is, I'm the judge. God is the judge. Look at verses 14 through 15. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So what Jesus is saying is, if the response to the gospel is one of hostility and rejection, don't worry about that. I'll deal with that. He's saying he's the judge, and the towns and people that reject him will have to deal with the same kind of judgment. In fact, Jesus says it will be worse than the judgment that Sodom and Gomorrah faced. And just in case you need a little refresher on this reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, what Sodom and Gomorrah faced can be found in Genesis 19, verses 24 through 28. I hope it's big enough for you to see on the screen. I'll read it. It says, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. And Abraham went early in the morning, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. (sighs) Sounds pretty serious to me. And that's what Jesus says is, is ultimately in store for the people and even towns that reject instead of embrace him as king and his kingdom message. But that actually comes after verse 14. And I find 14 fascinating and even astonishing. 
where he says that if they don't listen to you, just shake off the dust from your feet and leave that house or town. This is the same Jesus who, it is said in Scripture, came to seek and save the lost. And he's basically saying, well, if they don't want it, don't waste your time on them. And in fact, he even uses a phrase that's translated for us in English anyway, in, in our versions in front of us, that sounds a whole lot, comedically to me, a whole lot like George Bailey said in It's a Wonderful Life. You remember It's a Wonderful Life? We, some of you probably just watched it a few weeks ago where he says, I'm going to shake the dust off my feet of this crummy little town and I'm going to see the world. You remember that? It's that same phrase, essentially. And George Bailey's talking about being stuck in a town that he thinks is a dead end for him. He's sick and tired of what he thinks is a life that's going nowhere. Jesus is talking about something very different. He's talking about towns or cities whose response to gospel ministry is hostile. But you see what's similar between this fictional Christmas movie character and the actual words of Jesus, don't you? Both of them are talking about forgetting this town and going to that town. Leaving that one, going to this one. Now, does that bother you at all? Because I thought Jesus was a loving Savior. Well, he is. Scripture tells us later that God doesn't want anyone to perish. In fact, that came up very briefly in our E412 time this morning. And Jesus explicitly said in John 3, he didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. And here we have him essentially saying, preach the message, and if they re reject you, don't stress about it. Forget them. They'll be judged. One of the things that this tells me, friends, and I certainly do not have anywhere near all the answers to, to some of our more difficult questions when we read the scriptures, but one of the things that this tells me is that our Jesus is beautifully complex, multifaceted, and ultimately incomprehensible in his wisdom and majesty and power and depth and beauty because he is simultaneously a gracious loving savior and a righteous wrathful judge he is both the gentle and lowly lamb of god and the fierce and conquering lion of judah you can't dumb down jesus and have the real jesus you can't simplify or reduce him to only one or your favorite of his attributes to make him more palatable or exciting to you. He is perfectly, completely holy. He is the judge. He is the king. He is the savior. He is the good shepherd. He loves his sheep with such love that he came to save them. And he hates sin with such holy hatred and wrath that he will judge it. But as we zoom out a little bit, you know what else this passage tells me? These, these last couple verses here. Is that the mission of discipleship is more important, more Jesus-centered, and more core to the whole purpose of what Jesus came to do than we often treat it. Here, here's what I mean. Looking back even, it's so important that God is glorified in this mission that he chooses a diverse, even weird bunch of people to be sent out as apostles. If it was about the kind of glory that we might think of, maybe he would have chosen the most pious of Pharisees 
the most meticulously legalist of scribes or the most educated men, educated in the law that there was. But instead, here's fishermen, the tax collector, and even the one who would wind up betraying him. And friends, when this group of men began to turn the world upside down with the message of the kingdom that Jesus gave them to share, there was no other conclusion anyone could make than that it was God who did it. And so he got the glory. So so it's so important that God is glorified that he chooses this diverse group of people. It's also so important to Jesus. It's so central to his purpose that he's the one that sets the agenda. He has got requirements. He has got instructions for how it's supposed to go. And guess what, guys? He gets to do that because he's God. And we get to submit to him. And it's so core to the whole point of all of human existence that literally, literally, friends, life and death is hanging in the balance. Those who reject him suffer. Those who receive and believe enjoy a relationship with him forever. And so you see, friends, that's why I say that Discipleship 101 is simultaneously pretty basic, but also pretty challenging. Because on the one hand, we all have to admit it's very basic stuff to say that Jesus chose some unexpected people to share his message of his unexpected kingdom. That's basic. But you know what's tough about that? It means that when he has chosen me too, I don't get to say, nah, that's for the pastors to do. Or that's for someone else that's got more time for it. Or that's for me to do once life is more put together. Friends, look around the room. I mean, you don't know everything about everybody, but I can guarantee you that nobody in this room has it all together. And everyone's schedules are packed painfully. And every one of us has been called by God, to be fully invested in his mission. It is not to be a compartment in our lives where we've got the this thing and the this thing and the Jesus thing and the this thing and the this thing. No, he is at the center of who we are and everything that we do. Just like that, another one is this. On the one hand, it's very basic that Jesus sets the agenda. We'd all go, yeah, amen, right, exactly. But that's also challenging when we realize it means that we don't set the agenda. We get to follow his agenda, even when it means denying ourselves and following him. Even when it means not taking a bag for your journey, not having, a, not having uh, two tunics or two sandals or two staffs to make sure everything is taken care of. Uh, even when it means letting go of control of what we think our lives are supposed to look like, or everything I ever dreamed of, or when things get hard. When it means opening up to people about the real me. When it means canceling certain plans and letting go of certain expectations or pushing outside ourselves outside of our comfort zones. It gets hard. It's not easy. But we're going to see in the coming verses, there are other things that are very much not easy about following Jesus. But friends, if we really believe that Jesus sets the agenda, then we get to submit ourselves to his agenda. And finally, on the one hand, we would say it's very basic stuff that Jesus is the judge. Amen, that's right. But on the other hand, that can be tough to reckon with too because it means I'm not. 
It means I got to let go of my Messiah complex, my desire to save everybody. It might mean sometimes proverbially kicking the dust off our feet and moving on, as painful as it might be from a certain person, at least for a time, or a certain area that we've been pursuing, a certain kind of ministry that the Lord is calling us away from. Of course, pursuing people with the gospel most of the time is going to be a long process. So I don't think Jesus is calling us to just quick fire gospel pot shots and move on very quickly all the time. Not necessarily, but the point is, Jesus is the Savior and the judge, and we're not. You know, Redeemer Bible Church's mission of being and making disciples together really is consistent with this mission of Christ, isn't it? And sure, again, these guys were the apostles. And so they're different from us. And this is not about us in the same way. Some of the specifics here look different for us than it did for them. But at the heart of it, it's the same thing. Following Jesus' instructions, no matter how risky it seems, no matter how uncomfortable it gets, sharing the message of the kingdom, the good news of God's saving work. It's all the same stuff we're called to today at its heart. And so, friends, as we begin to settle back into some of the rhythms of life that we might consider more normal after the holiday season, may God give us strength to strive with holy striving to keep central in our lives Jesus' call and commission of discipleship. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, please, in Jesus' name, we ask for strength. We ask for wisdom. We ask for faith to obey even when it goes against our most natural senses. None of us is particularly jazzed about going outside of our comfort zones at any given moment. None of us is... um, Cannot, none of us cannot relate to feelings of inadequacy, to feelings of inability, to feelings even of disqualification because of our weaknesses and our sins. But Lord, will you please help all of us as individuals and as an entire church family to trust in you, to look to you, to follow you. Amen. Let's take a few minutes and pray quietly in our hearts in response to God's word.